This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Man, it's so, so, so good to be gathered together for Easter this morning, isn't it? Like a year ago, we were, except for a couple of us in here, we were all at home. This is way better, amen? amen. This is way better. But you know, one of the hardest things about this past year has been the social isolation, isn't it? Right, the, the lack of, of physical connectedness. Like we were done with digital connectedness about two weeks into this thing, weren't we? But that lack of physical connectedness. And so Thursday, for example, Thursday was opening day at Wrigley Field, amen? There's a few White Sox fans in here, it's okay. We love you too, Charlie. Thursday was opening day at Wrigley Field, and, and here's the thing. Regardless of how good the weather's expected to be, and regardless of how bad the Cubbies are expected to be, right? Like the friendly confines every year are filled with 40,000 fans screaming their heads off, singing, go Cubs, go, aren't they? And hundreds and thousands, millions and billions and trillions of Cubs fans around the world are gathered together in pubs and living rooms and garages and backyards watching that game. But not, not last year. This year, 10,000 got to, but we miss that, don't we? we? We miss that shared experience of being with others and gathering together, whether it's sporting events or concerts. Like, we miss concerts, don't we? I miss just going to the city and walking around the river walk or museum or a park with a family. We miss meals together. We miss movies with friends and families and even just total strangers. We miss being around them. But you know, of all the things that I miss, the thing that I have missed the most is this right here, what we're doing right now, gathering together to worship. Because I think we can all admit, like, worshiping from home is not the same, is it? No. Worshiping at home is not the same. Even if we had the best cameras and we had the best production, it's still not the same. And it's not supposed to be the same. It's not the same because something's missing. And as great as this morning is, like today has been absolutely incredible. I think I've cried 18 times already today and it's not over yet. But as great as this morning is, it's still not the same. And I'm not talking about registering for service. I'm not talking about distancing and wearing masks and the hand sanitizer station every three feet in the building. Like, you know, wish we could all go back a year ago and invest in Purell and Zoom stock right now. No, it's not the same because we're not all here. We're not all here yet. We're not experiencing this together yet. We're not worshiping as one family, as one body. We are not complete. We are not whole, not yet. And I don't think this is going to feel the same until we're all back, regardless of the mask. It's the people that we miss. And that's why I get so excited every time I see someone register for the first time. I've got an array of excited gifts that I usually fire back at you the second I get a notification that someone new has registered because I'm that excited. I get that excited when I see people come for the first time, their first Sunday back since the pandemic began. And that's because there's something special about all of us gathering together in the same place and at the same time to worship. And that's always been true of God's people. But why? Like, what is it that makes this? What is it that makes corporate worship 
so special, so necessary, so formative in our walk with Jesus. That's what I want us to see this Easter morning as we continue our series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, in our series called Behold the King here in chapter 12, in a sermon that we're calling The Worship of the King. And chapter 12 is, is a song, if you will, a song that concludes this opening section of these first 12 chapters in which Isaiah is calling out God's people for turning from God and trusting in things other than God, which as we've seen over these last few weeks has led them further and further away from God. This once great nation of Israel had become divided. The kings had become corrupted and the kingdom, it was crumbling. And so what Isaiah has been doing over these last few chapters is showing them their desperate need for a king and of God's promise of a king. One who would be unlike any other king that had ruled over Israel. One that would be just and holy. One who would be faithful and righteous. One who would lead them back to God. One who would restore God's kingdom and reign over God's people. And so he concludes this opening prophecy with a song. A song written over 2,700 years ago about a day that still lies in the future. A song that is comprised of two verses, each beginning with the phrase, you will say in that day in verses 1 and 4. A song that God's people sung together as they waited for that day to arrive. Might be better said that you will sing on this day. And every day, until that day. And it was a song that they sang in the midst of a dark time. And as they sang this song of salvation, it did two things. Number one, it helped them remember who God is, what God had done, and what God had promised to do. But not only that, it helped them proclaim the truth of God's word and God's promises to others, to the world. And that's what I want us to see this morning. That's our big idea. And so if you're taking notes, go ahead and grab your pencil, write this down. What I want us to see in God's word this morning is this. It's that we gather together to remind ourselves and proclaim to the world God's gift of salvation. Right? We gather together to remind ourselves and proclaim to the world God's gift of salvation. And I pray that through God's word, you would be reminded of that good news this morning. So if you haven't already, let's get out our Bibles uh, and let's flip in them to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's going to be just past the halfway point. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 12 this morning. And again, we've got two, two verses in this song. And the first verse of this song is a reminder. And this reminder is that we gather together to sing to God, but we sing to God for each other. And so what we're going to see is that we gather to remind each other of our salvation found only in God. Right, we gather to remind each other of our salvation found only in God. Let's read this first verse of this song in verses 1 through 3. The prophet says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. On this day, on every day, until that future day, when, when Jesus, as God's promised king, returns and he reigns over the new heaven and the new earth, we will give thanks to the Lord, Isaiah says. 
And the you to whom he's speaking here in verse 1, that you is singular. And the prophet, he's not speaking to an individual. He's not speaking to an individual person. He's speaking to a people as one. He's he's calling out to the people of God uh, throughout time from every nation, tribe, culture, and language to, to join together and to sing this song with one collective voice as one united people. John Calvin, writing on this verse, says, Isaiah addresses the the whole people as if he were addressing one man because it was their duty to be so united as to be one. And that's true of us as we gather today, isn't it? We don't gather as individual members, but as one body united together in Christ singing together with one loud voice. And the song that we sing is a song of of thanksgiving, a song sung to God, right? I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And while it is sung to God, it is sung both with each other and it is sung as a reminder for each other. A reminder that we need because I think we're often quick to forget things, aren't we? You notice how when you get ready to go, you get to the car and you realize you forgot your keys. So you go back in and you get your keys and you come back to the car. You realize you forgot your phone, so you go get your phone. And then you come back out and then you realize, I forgot my mask. Like the list of things we're forgetting has grown in the midst of this, hasn't it? We're quick to forget. And so there's a couple things here I want us to see. Number one is that we sing together as a reminder of our sin against God. Right? We sing as a reminder of our sin against God. And we need that reminder Because I think we're quick to forget the severity of our sin. I think we're quick to forget the severity of what it is that we have done. Because the truth is, we want to go our own way, don't we? We want to go our own way. We want to define our own truth. We want to live our own life our way. And there's times when we view God's word and we view God's way as unfair, don't we? We can nod our head, yes, we do. We view it as unfair. We view it as antiquated, out of date. We view it as restrictive, unnecessarily restrictive. When in fact, it is actually loving and protective. See, as the sovereign creator of the universe, God alone knows what is best for us, his creation. And as our loving, faithful, heavenly father, God wants what is best for us, his adopted and chosen children. And so our sin, our disobedience, it is a rejection of God's word and his rule over our lives. Creation is rebelling against the creator. And that has made us enemies of God. Our sin stirs God's anger and it separates us from God. And we feel that, don't we, at times? We feel that distance. We feel increasingly distant from God. And he begins to feel increasingly silent, doesn't he? Until we reach this point that God's almost not even a part of our life anymore at times. We need that reminder of our sin, but we also sing together as a reminder of our salvation found in God. Our salvation from God. And we need that reminder because I think we're also quick to forget the assurances of what God has done for us. Right? His anger turned away, the prophet said. But why? Why would God's anger turn away? Did he forget what we did? I mean, I'll be honest. I forget what the boys did sometimes. 
Like they were supposed to get in trouble and then I just kind of forgot and they're like, I guess dad forgot. We're all good now, aren't we? Did he change his mind? Like did, he, did something used to be sin and now it's not sin anymore so we're okay, we can do that now? Did he change his mind? Did he, did he change the rules? Maybe, maybe a, a blood sacrifice is actually no longer necessary. Death is no longer the punishment for sin. Or, or does God just not care anymore? Has he just given up hope on us? We're too far gone. Or was God just hangry? Like we've all been there. Now God did not relinquish his anger. He redirected his anger, didn't he? He redirected his anger towards a substitute, one who stood in our place. Someone else picked up the tab, so to speak, paying the debt that we owe to God that our sin had accrued. Someone else stood in our place as a substitute. Someone else shed their blood. Someone else died our death. And as we flip forward into chapter 52 and 53, Isaiah, he anticipates this excruciating event as the suffering servant, this man of sorrows, he calls them, who bore the sin of many. He was smitten and afflicted by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and his chastisement, his punishment by the hand of God is what brought us peace with God. And over 700 years later, Jesus fulfilled that very promise, that very prophecy. As on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. His anger turned away from us and it turned toward his son. But what makes, what makes all of this so amazing is that God was under absolutely no obligation to do any of this, was he? He wasn't obligated to do this. No, this wasn't something that we had earned. This wasn't something that we deserved. God, he could have justly and rightly poured out his anger on us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, in spite of all we have done and all that we have become, becoming enemies of God, made us alive together with Christ through his death. Amen? And by grace, you have been saved. And so what that means for us, it means, it means there is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. And that is true no matter how far you have strayed. That is true no matter how long you have strayed, no matter how many times you have strayed. See, Jesus didn't just come to forgive the small sins. He came to forgive all the sins. He didn't just come to forgive a certain number of sins, but the all sin, the sin of the world. But what we know is this story did not end on Friday, did it? The story did not end at the cross because death is not the end. And when the woman, when the women went to the tomb on Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, to prepare Jesus' body for burial, an angel appeared to them, and he said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And he is not here, for he has risen, as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Right? Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus defeated death. Not only are we forgiven by his sacrificial death, but we are freed by his victorious resurrection. We are freed from the chains of sin that have enslaved you. And that means sin no longer has power over you. We are freed from the chains that enslaved you, and you are freed from the clutches of death that await you. 
We will take our last breath. We will die. However, death is not the end. Amen? Death is not the end. And that forgiveness that cleanses you of that shame and that guilt that you feel, the freedom of living a life that God has called you to live, that is available to anyone and everyone who simply confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that what we celebrate today is not a story but is truth. That 2,000 years ago, women came to a tomb where they had laid the body the previous day, and he was gone. And what I love about the gospel is that nothing in here was done based on anything you've done. It was all done because of what you have done. And I think there's no greater comfort, as Isaiah says here, than the assurance of your salvation from God secured by Christ. And so we sing, we sing together with with one loud voice, reminding each other of what he says here in verse two. We remind each other, behold, God is my salvation and I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. While we were once his enemies, we are now his chosen and beloved and adopted children. And I think we are in constant need of that reminder, aren't we? We're in need of that reminder because we're quick to forget the severity of our sin, and that fills us with pride. But we're also quick to forget the assurance of our salvation, and when we do, it fills us with fear, and we become afraid. And when fear sets in, we forget the promises that God has made to us, and we fail to obey the commands that God has given to us. We turn inward, turning away from God, and we trust in things other than God. And just as happened to God's people in the days of Isaiah, it leads us further and further away from God. Right? That's the setting of Isaiah's prophecies here. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they lived in a constant state of fear, not just of their surrounding enemies, but of each other. The fear of their enemies was greater than their faith in God. And that fear led them to forget God's promises and to fail to obey God's commands. And so fearing an attack by the northern kingdom of Israel and their their partner Syria, the Judas king Ahaz, he, he turned from God. He trusted in others. He 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 trusted in what would be known as the most evil empire to walk the face of the planet at the time, the Assyrians. And if you're not familiar with the series, to kind of put it into perspective, it would be like turning to and trusting in Darth Vader. No, it would be like turning to and trusting in Thanos. And trust me, it ain't going to go well for half of you at least. That was a Marvel joke. As illogical as it sounds, though, that's exactly what we do because that's exactly what fear does. It it drives this wedge between us and God. We don't trust anyone. We don't even trust God. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. I think all of us here are afraid of something, and I'm not just talking about afraid of snakes. But I want to ask, I want you to think about what fear is driving you to live your life the way you're currently living it. What fear is driving you to turn from God and to trust in something other than God? What fear is driving you to close God's word and not see that command 
but to go your own way and live by your own truth and to live your own life. I think there's a fear in all of us that's driving us further from God. But see, so often throughout Scripture, when God gives us a command, he follows that command with a promise, doesn't he? They go together so often. And here's an example. Uh, God told Joshua in Joshua uh, chapter 1, uh, before he led the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the promised land of Canaan, right? Moses has just died, and Joshua's been handed the baton as the leader of God's people. And, and, and what God tells him is be strong and courageous. But with that command comes a promise. And God tells him, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I think that's why it's so important that we gather together, that we worship together, to hear God's commands, to be reminded of God's promises. That's why we read and we preach from God's word. That's why scripture informs the lyrics that we sing, the prayers that we lift up, because it strengthens our faith and it drives out the fear so that like Isaiah, we will trust and not be afraid. We are reminded when we gather of who God is, that he is sovereign and faithful, that he is loving and gracious. We are reminded of what it is that God has done, and we are reminded of who we are, that we are a family, that we are our fathers, chosen and adopted children, that we are brothers and sisters united in Christ. We are reminded of God's commands, that they are loving and protective, and we are reminded of his promises, that they are true, and that every one of them will find their yes, their amen, their fulfillment in and through Jesus. And so like Paul, we cry out, if God is for us, who could be against us? There is no answer to that question. But not only is our faith strengthened as we gather together to worship, our hearts are filled with joy. You felt that this morning, didn't you? Whatever you brought into this room, as we sing, as we listen to each other's voices, we are filled with joy. And he says in verse 3, with joy, you draw water from the wells of salvation. And there is something so special about physically gathering together, worshiping in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of each other. And if you've been away for a while because of the pandemic, like, you feel it when you return. You've forgotten how much you missed it, right, when you see the faces. You, you forgot how much you need it when you hear those voices. You've forgotten how special it is, even with mass, even with the chairs a bit further apart, because it fills you with joy. It fills you with joy regardless of the, of the emotions you're feeling when you come in, regardless of the circumstances you're facing that might be awaiting you when you leave. It's true regardless of the songs we sing. It's true regardless of the sermon we preach, which praise God for that as a preacher. We can get up here, the instruments can fail, I can preach a dud, and the Spirit of God still moves. Because our worship is not dependent on human performance, but divine presence. Amen? See, worship, worship's not about you. Worship's about God. Worship's not for you. It's for God. Right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it begins with this question. The opening question is this. What is the chief end of man? Why is it that we exist? 
And you know what the answer is? It says man's chief end, the reason we exist, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man, we were made for this. We were made to worship. We all worship. David Foster Wallace, in a 2005 commencement speech, he he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Because everybody worships, the only choice we get is what or whom do we worship. We are always worshiping. And you worship what you love. And as we worship what we love, it becomes formative. It grows us into the image of that thing that we worship. And N.T. Wright, preaching on this passage, he says, you become like what or whom you worship. And so not only are we made to worship, we are made to worship a very specific thing. We are made to worship God and God alone because God alone is worthy of our worship. Amen? But here's the thing. That's not just true of Sunday morning at 10 o'clock for 75 to 90 minutes. It's true of every moment of every day because worship is not just a part of life. Worship is a way of life. Right? Your entire life should be a song that sings of God's glory to all of creation. And here's the best part. When you do that thing that you were created to do, it fills your heart with joy. It fills your heart with joy as you draw living water from this well of salvation that never runs dry. Calvin on this verse, he says, everything necessary for supporting life, it flows to us from the undeserved goodness of God. And that is so important for us to know and to be reminded of because as we leave this place and we head out into the world, we carry that joy that strengthens us and sustains us throughout the week. Because here's what happens. And you notice this if you've been away for a while. Uh, When your faith runs dry, you're tempted to draw from any well you can find, aren't you? You're so famished, you'll drink anything thinking it will help. It'd be like being out in a boat in the middle of the ocean and you're so dehydrated you drink the salt water. That's not going to go well for you either. My wife and I, we used to live in Phoenix after we got married for a few years, and we, we fell in love with the desert. Everybody either loves or hates the desert. There's nobody that's impartial about the desert. We fell in love with it. 120 degrees in a dry heat, bring it on. I'm good with that. Uh, you want to know what it's like? Stick your head in a 120-degree oven. It feels like that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But that's what it feels like. But here's the thing. What, what you learn living in the desert is... If you become thirsty, it's already too late. The game's already lost. And so your, your goal is to drink so much water so often that you just never become thirsty. All those things that you forget when you get in your car, you also in Arizona don't forget to take your water bottle with you. And please don't touch the uh, seatbelt if it's metal. Uh, it'll burn you. And I can't stress enough how necessary this time together is how necessary it is for your soul, how formative it is for your walk with Jesus. We need these reminders. We need each other, don't we? 
We gather together to sing to God as a reminder to each other of our salvation. And here's the second verse of this song. The second verse is a proclamation, one that we sing to God for the good of others now. And it's that we go to proclaim to others of their salvation found only in God. Right? We go, we go out into the world to proclaim to others, to proclaim to the world of their salvation found in God. Let's read this second verse of the song in verses 4 through 6. He says, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously, and let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, where is the first Verse of the song was encouragement. The second verse of the song is an exhortation sung to each other. And there's a change here. The, the you that he's calling out to, instead of singular, now it's plural. Now he's speaking to us as individuals as we leave this place, as we go out into the world. But yet what I love about this song is it shows that who we are when we gather together here and who we are when we go out into the world, into our homes, our communities, our schools, our jobs, they're the exact same thing, aren't they? We're not one person for 90 minutes on Sunday morning and then someone else the rest of the week. No, who we are and how we live, it does not change. In fact, we continue singing. We continue giving thanks to the Lord. And while we continue singing this song of salvation to God when we leave, rather than it serving as a reminder for each other, it is now a proclamation for others. It's a proclamation for the entire world to hear as we continue to call upon his name, to call upon the name of God. Think about that for a second. There's something intimate about knowing someone's name, isn't there? You're not just a person, and that happens when you have kids, right? You become some, so-and-so's mom. I'm Ethan and Sean's dad when I go to the school. Jill is Ethan and Sean's mom when we go to the school. Unless she's uh, working at the school, then she's Miss Jill. But there's something intimate when we refer to each other by name, isn't there? And we get to do that with God. We get to refer to God by name. He has made himself known we know him by his name. We see this in Exodus 3, don't we? When Moses, uh, he, he's meeting with God at the burning bush. Remember that story? He's meeting with God at the burning bush, and God's like, yeah, I'm going to need you to go back to Egypt and rescue my people. I'm going to do some really amazing things through you. And, and Moses is like, okay, I'm good with that, but uh, is there like a secret password that I need when I get back there? Who should I tell them sent me? And, and God, he says to him, you tell them this. You tell them I am who I am. You tell them that my name is Yahweh and I'm the one that sent you. I'm getting my people. God, he doesn't just want us to know stories and facts and verses about him. He wants us to intimately know him by name, to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. And not just us, but everyone, the entire world. And think about it. When you know the way to somewhere that everyone else wants to go, you tell them, don't you? If you know the way to San Jose, Dion Warwick, anybody? You tell them. If you know the way to Walt Drug, who all has been to Walt Drug? Had that free ice water. I think that's still a thing. Walt Drug is this 
middle of nowhere place in South Dakota that you stop at on your way to Mount Rushmore and the Badlands and everywhere else further west. It's kind of like the gateway. You see signs all across the country, 400, 8,000, 8 billion miles to wall drug. Our neighbors actually have one in their backyard. It's kind of cool. If you know where all the cool spots in Iowa are, and trust me when I say there is plural cool spots in Iowa, you don't keep that to yourself. You tell everybody, don't you? Right? You don't keep it to yourself. You tell others. You show them the way. And when you hear good news, you tell people. You text people. You tweet. You post an Instagram story about it. You share it with your friends, your neighbors. You share it with a stranger next to you in line at Starbucks. Because it's so good, you want to make sure nobody misses out. And isn't that exactly what the women did after the angel told them that Jesus isn't here, for he's risen? They went, and they didn't just walk back. It says they went quickly. They ran back with fear and great joy, and they told his disciples, he is risen from the dead because there's no better news than the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? There is no greater story than the Easter story in the empty tomb. But when we leave this place today and we go to have brunch, we go to, have, to work, we go to school, throughout this week, here's the thing. You're going to come across people all day, every day that are lost. And they're looking for that way to salvation. You're going to come across people that are weak and looking for the strength to sustain them. You're going to come across people who are afraid and looking for that faith that drives out fear. You're going to come across people who are empty, looking for that joy to fill them. And you're going to come across people who are thirsty and looking for a well of living water to quench their thirst. And what God is saying to us here in the second verse of this song is that those who know the way are called to show the way to others. That is our job. That is our vocation as followers of Jesus. We are to make known his deeds among the peoples, to proclaim his name, to exalt his name. We were not only made to worship, we were made to witness. We were made to know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, but we were also made to go and to love like Jesus and point people to Jesus, aren't we? We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves, aren't we? One command. And so we sing praises to the Lord so that others will heal, so that others will know who God is. His name, that he alone is Lord, that he alone is the Holy One. We sing so that others will know what God has done, so they will know his deeds among the peoples, for he has done gloriously, Isaiah says. And we do this so that others will come and so that others will call upon his name and so that others will receive salvation, so that others will abide and rest in his presence, rest in his grace and worship with his people. Let this be made known in all the earth because God is both worthy to be known and worthy to be made known. God alone is worthy of our worship. And so we gather together as it's the people of God, in the presence of God, to worship God, both as a reminder to each other and as a proclamation for the world. A proclamation and a reminder of God's gift of salvation to the world. We sing this song of thanksgiving. We sing this song of salvation 
Not just with our voices, but with our hands, with our feet, with our entire being, our entire lives, Paul says, is to be an act of spiritual worship. Our entire lives should be a song that sings of God's glory to all of his creation. Of his salvation offered to the entire world through the sacrificial death of his son and his victorious resurrection and his glorious ascension. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the reason that this day, as we celebrate the resurrection and the empty tomb, is so important. That is why we cry out with one loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain and who rose again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come yet again. Amen? Our king is not dead. He is alive. And that is why we offer praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns this very day seated at the right hand of the Father. We may be freaking out. He ain't. Remember the closing words to our series in Daniel? God's got this. God's had every day of this last year and he's got every day that lies until that future day when Christ returns. Because today Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He is victorious, and he is glorious. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.